Hosanna. That's a strange word, isn't it? And we say the word, we sometimes even associate the word in our mind with Palm Sunday. But as Christians, we know about this word. We've heard it before. But this morning, we're going to look at what that word means and uh, where it shows up in the Old Testament, which is in Psalm 118. So if you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 118, and we'll look at just the latter half of that psalm, verses 19 through 29. Greetings to you and uh, welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church uh, here, but also via live stream on Palm Sunday. This is the day when Jesus enters Jerusalem for his last week of earthly ministry. And the word for Hosanna is in verse 25 of our passage. The ESV translates it as save us. Some other English versions will translate it as save now. It's two words, Hoshia na, Hosanna, Hoshia na. Save us or save now. And right here in verse 25, it's the only place that, well, it's the only place that this word pairing shows up. A special welcome this morning to our little theologians. I'd like for you to draw a picture for me of a uh, truck, you know, always, always cars and trucks with me, but a truck with a very large cargo that needs to be uh, tied down with all kinds of cords and uh, tarps. Uh, really, it's way too much for this truck. But if you just tie it down with enough cables, it'll stay. Why don't you draw a picture of that for me, please? Again, our passage is from Psalm 119, beginning at verse 19, but would you please join me in prayer first? Father, thank you by your sovereign hand for bringing us to this place together this morning. You have done this, and we are grateful. Thank you, Father, for uh, uh, awaking uh, all of us that we might participate in this service, even via live stream. You have done this. And in doing so, you've done so with a purpose. Father, would you use this opportunity in which we spend time in your word reading, thinking, studying, and me preaching, would you use this as a means by which you feed us by your grace? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Psalm 119, let's jump towards the end, begin at verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success." Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of our Lord. Well, you heard this morning from Matthew chapter 21 that when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, there are two crowds singing to him. There's a crowd in front of him, uh, the crowd that seems to have come out of the city of Jerusalem to greet him, And there's a crowd that is behind him, a crowd uh, that is uh, those who perhaps know him better than those who greet him from the city. These are crowds that follow him likely from the city of Bethany. And these crowds, as they uh, cry out uh, Hosanna, among other things, uh, some in the crowd would understand what Hosanna Means They would understand the word itself, but also the word in its context of Psalm 118. But many, of course, would be crying out these very words, and they wouldn't understand what exactly they mean. They wouldn't understand Psalm 118. They wouldn't understand uh, very much at all about the occasion itself, but everyone else is crying these words, and they are too. That happens today, doesn't it? Well... What are they singing? Well, even if we don't consider the New Testament uh, and the quotations of Psalm 118, what they're singing is a liturgical psalm. It's It's a psalm that has this special worship importance. Some scholars will call it a temple psalm. Psalms 113 and 118 are actually uh, bundled together and known as uh, Hallel Psalms, uh, Psalms of uh, praise, but uh, they're Psalms that are used particularly for worship. And most of these Psalms, Psalms uh, 113 to 118, most of them would be quite well known. They would be used often in worship services among the Jews of the first century. And this psalm in particular, 118, it has clear associations with Passover, and it may be that this was a normal psalm used for the Passover feast. In this psalm, there's someone crying, out of my distress I call upon you, O Lord. There's reference to the right hand that saves valiantly, uh, and it uh, echoes of Exodus chapter 15 when uh, they cry out to God in Egypt, and then God, he delivers them from Egypt, and they go into the wilderness, and they're surrounded by nations. That too is referenced uh, in this psalm, and it could be that uh, entrance through gates may be an expectation of entering uh, into uh, the promised land. It's a temple psalm, well-known, used for worship, and so many people would know it. But scholars, uh, will, they'll call it a temple psalm, but also it's a royal psalm. It, it refers, doesn't it, to someone who is great, who is coming into those gates, uh, entering either a city or maybe uh, entering the temple mound. There would be a gate in both places. But it's a royal psalm because there's someone uh, very important and meaningful that is coming into the city or the temple. And as he comes, the worshipers say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so it's a royal psalm because it's a psalm that uh, presents us with imagery of a king uh, entering the temple. And of course, that 
Well, that would be King David. And so it's a temple psalm, but it's also a royal psalm, but it's a messianic psalm as well. Verse 22, Jesus himself quotes as an application to himself. He is that stone that the builders have rejected. He is that stone that has become the cornerstone. And it may not be a very natural connection. That is, the original audience of Psalm 118 might not have seen the Messiah in verse 22 as the stone that the builders rejected. But Jesus says it of himself And uh, Peter, uh, one of the apostles who uh, actually uses this uh, very image three times in his preaching and teaching ministry. And so it's a messianic psalm. So think about that, how important this psalm is, a temple psalm, a royal psalm, a messianic psalm. But for our purposes, this is a Palm Sunday psalm. This is a psalm that is sung at the, at the triumphal entry of Jesus. And the word Hosanna occurs in verse 25, save us. And then they sing in verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the very psalm itself feels like a ceremony. But when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, the psalm, well, it becomes the screenplay for the ceremony. It's the ceremony of a great figure coming in victory and coming to be praised and to be adored. Save us, we pray, or save us now. It's both a prayer request, but it's also a praise. God, you have saved us. Here is the great figure who represents that salvation. And now show us your victory in this moment as the great figure comes. What this psalm teaches us is this, that Jesus the Savior is here. And in this moment, now is the time for us to give him all worship and adoration. The Savior's here. Now's the time to worship him. What a great message that is for Palm Sunday, for those of us who feel as though uh, Easter is just a, another event in the, in the calendar. It, it somehow becomes very, very common. But what a great reminder to us, the King, he's here. Now is the time to worship him. What a wonderful reminder. Now the passage uh, that we're looking at I think is divided up into thirds. I've divided it up into thirds. It's poetry. Sometimes it's rather difficult to find those divisions, but uh, it's divided into thirds. And the, the first part is a procession. The second part is a praise or a prayer. And then the third part I'm calling a postlude because, well, postlude, it begins with the letter P and I can't resist. But the very end of the passage, beginning at verse 27, is a postlude, but really it's the, well, it's the application. It's the what to do. Now, I've been preaching through uh, Mark's gospel And I wouldn't say it's easy, but there's a sense in which the passages organize themselves rather well because it's a narrative. There's a a story that's being told with every passage that I'm preaching out of Mark's gospel. And this, you might think, is different because it is poetry and it's a psalm, but it's still a storytelling psalm. 
there's a story and an, an unfolding event that takes place uh, in this uh, very psalm. And in verses 19 through 22, there is a procession. Someone great arrives. Look at verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. A great figure uh, has come to the very gates and is commanding uh, entrance. Now, as I said, it could be entrance to the Temple Mound or it could be entrance to a city. The more time I spend in Psalm 118, uh, even while great scholars differ, it feels more to me like it is a great one who is coming to the Temple Mound. Look in verse uh, 26. There's a crowd that's here. Verse 26, we bless you from the house of the Lord. There's no exclamation point there, but verse 26 seems to be rather loud. And uh, someone who is nearer to the temple is actually uh, saying, we bless you from the house of the Lord. We're at that temple, you who are entering by the greats, or by the gate. And this great figure, he wants to give thanks to the Lord. This great figure is coming into uh, this temple area, coming through the gates, not necessarily to uh, be honored himself, but rather to give thanks to someone else. It's the kind of great figure who's humble, not coming to boast. It's hard to tell who it is that's uh, controlling the door. Perhaps it would be uh, a priest that's actually uh, hearing that command, open to me the gates of righteousness, and the, the priest then uh, opens those gates that the great figure might come in. And the great figure seems to be uh, speaking in verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Now those are words to God. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. This great figure is showing what's on his heart. He's really uh, uh, using words that are already quoted earlier in the psalm in verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Those words are quoted from uh, Moses' song in Exodus chapter 15. So just think about this great figure coming into the temple mound, uh, uh, actually thanking God because God has become his salvation and saying that the Lord is my strength and my song. You think the great figure is coming through the gates of the Temple Mound singing? And if he's singing, he would be singing this, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. That's earlier in the very same psalm. He enters... He comments on the very gate itself, almost as he is entering, singing, praising God, knowing that God is his salvation. As he comes through the gates, he seems to comment on the architecture of the gates themselves. The stone that was previously common in this application has become, well, extravagant, beautiful, the very cornerstone of these gates was at one time a common stone, but here it is used to magnificent purposes. And this is a praise 
to Jehovah who has laid the foundation stone in Zion, says the prophet Isaiah. He who believes will not waver. You see how this image, it's like stacking up. This great figure is praising God and really, whether he's singing or not, he's actually showing his faithfulness to this great God. And if you really want to be uh, uh, actually very blatant about who this great figure is, well, if nothing else, he's a perfect Jew. He's a perfect follower of God. And as he comes in, there's nothing about himself that he shows. It's everything about God with his words and with his attitude, with that which he notices. He comes into the righteous gates completely and perfectly righteous. Now, while that image is floating around in your heads, I want, to, I want you to contrast that with another image that would have been floating around the heads of those who witnessed the very event of Jesus coming into Jerusalem in this way. It was very common in Roman culture for a great figure to be honored as they entered a city. A great figure, if they went out to battle when they came into the city, would be honored by an enormous procession, a long procession of all of the great spoils of their victory. This is but one example. Uh, Mary Beard and her wonderful history of uh, ancient Rome gives us several examples of this. It was very common. Uh, One great uh, general uh, returns to Rome showing off all of those spoils that he won in the name of Rome. And uh, it takes, uh, Mary Beard says, three days for him to trundle all the loot through the city. Why is that? Because it included some 250 truckloads of sculptures and painting alone. So much silver coin that it took 3,000 men to carry it into the city in 750 huge vessels. And in fact, uh, before coming into the city, uh, this man had commissioned elaborate paintings and models that would be a part of the procession brought into the city of Rome that would tell the story of his great battles and his conquests in the towns that he had captured. Everyone, everyone will know how great this great figure is. But that isn't the way Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Jesus comes in faithfully praising the God who saves. He comes in perfect righteousness. And then the psalm at verse 23 seems to me to take a little bit of a turn. It seems to be that a praise and then a prayer break out, almost as if as this great figure passes the threshold of the gate, then the uh, people respond with praise and prayer. Uh, This praise, it breaks out from the crowd, and you can see in verse 23, right there, that the speaker shifts to an us. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, it may be the the, the priest making a command, saying, this is how you're to respond to this great figure as he passes the threshold of the gate. 
But it could be the voice of the people themselves rapturously, uh, spontaneously breaking out in uh, great praise. This is the day that the Lord has made. The coming of the Great One is before us. And then out of this praise, a prayer seems to begin in verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. I want you to contemplate that uh, this afternoon, how uh, 23 begins with praise and then it morphs into this prayer in verse 25. And it could be that this is as well the priest who has uh, commanded the people to praise and now the priest, he is leading them uh, in this corporate prayer, even in the procession of this great one. From the perspective of the one writing this psalm, whoever that is, we're not told who the author of the psalm is, but from the perspective, perspective of the one who's writing the psalm, it would seem that verse 25 is there to stir up our hearts that we too would pray. Save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. We praise this great figure. That's, that's the the prayer, verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the perfect one. And the ones who are praying, they seem to know something about themselves, even in this prayer. They know that they're not the perfect one. They're not the great figure. Blessed is him He's the one who truly comes in the name of the Lord. They know that they cannot stand in this temple before God themselves. They need the great figure. And it's Palm Sunday, and he's come. This is what we need to recognize this morning. The one coming into the city is the only one who can save His name is the name that is above every other name. He is the highest. The world doesn't recognize that today. But the the world needs to be reminded that salvation comes only by this great figure and none other. The world needs to hear that no man or woman is their own great figure. They need Jesus. Today is the day he comes. He's past that threshold as the perfect one to save. And he's here. Now what? Now what? This great postlude beginning at verse 27 tells us what. The Lord is God and he's made his light to shine upon us. You know, that's a statement about uh, not merely revelation. It's a statement about closeness. God, he has come near to us. He has made his very light to shine upon us. He has come close to us. There seems to be a command. It's hard to tell in verse 27 if it's a command uh, from the priest or if they're just words that just begin to stir among the crowd. Uh, Bind the festal sacrifice with cords to the horn of the altar. Such a difficult phrase. There's a couple of meanings here. I favor one, but I'll share both. 
One of the meanings could be that this uh, sacrifice, this festal sacrifice, is a sacrifice that only Jesus can offer. He is that great sacrifice. And it seems as though the great figure uh, comes and goes straight from that gate to the altar that he would offer his life up to be that victim. But to bind any victim at the altar is rather unusual, and that binding word seems especially unusual here. We know that Jesus did not need to be bound to any altar. He offered his life voluntarily. The binding, some commentators say, refers not to a literal binding, but to a unique service. Jesus, he binds himself to the obligations of God in the covenant of grace. We're saved by grace because Jesus binds himself to all of the obligations that God has. John Calvin instead looked at verse 27 and he said this, and I tend to agree with this view, but I, I seem to also go back and forth. Calvin said that verse 27 and 28, they really ought to be connected together. And what's 28 about? Verse 28 is all about thanks. You are my God, I'll give thanks to you. And Calvin, he says this, he says, you know, sacrifice and thanks, they're always bound together. We see examples of this all over the New Testament, particularly in Romans chapter 12, where our lives are to be offered as what? Living sacrifices. That's, that's what thankfulness looks like. Now, Calvin, that's all he says, and that's probably the safest territory. Just say what you're sure of and then move on. But it's a strange expression of binding the festal sacrifice with cords now, it may be that the offerings that we bring to God are plentiful, plentiful offerings, and it could be that these cords are, are reference to uh, massive amounts of sacrifices, the kind of sacrifices that were given to God for great events like the completion of the temple. And at that, at that great dedication, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals were offered before God. And it may be that that's what the binding is about. Everything about who we are as a Christian, it belongs to God. Everything about who we are as a person, our identity, it belongs to God. Everything about our speech and our actions, so too do they belong to God. Everything about us belongs to God. Why? Because the great figure has done everything for our salvation. And the image here of the binding of festal sacrifices may be that. There is plenty to give. Our offerings ought to be everything about who we are. Jesus, the Savior, is here. The great figure is here. Now is time for us to worship Him. Now is the time to give everything that we have for the one who gave everything that He had in perfect submission to the Holy Father that we might be saved. Now, I want to finish with this. It's a little negative, but I want you to listen carefully. Now is the time. What do you need to hear in that? You know that song, Amazing Grace? Of course you know the song, Amazing Grace. 
But John Newton himself was discouraged that that song became so popular that people would sing it whose heart didn't mean it. This is in Newton's very time period. That song was so popular that he lamented the fact that people would sing that song and not know anything about what it meant. Does that happen today? During the season of Advent, we gather together for the singing of Handel's Messiah. Everyone, for sure, everyone who's singing, they know exactly who this Messiah is and how great and special he is. Of course you know amazing grace. But do you believe amazing grace? And the crowd that greets Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem is a mixed crowd. And in just a week's time, some of those same voices will be crying out, crucify him. It's Palm Sunday. Now is the time. Which are you? One who will sing amazing grace know what it means or sing amazing grace simply because it's something that we do and we sing hosanna because you know that you're saved by the great figure we sing hosanna because it's it's palm sunday after all he is the great figure he is the only savior he is here now now is the time Welcome to Palm Sunday. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you did this. <laughs> you came. And we've seen a great light. And we know that we're saved by the work of the perfect one. You did this. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.